0: You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast, and now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right, welcome in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast, I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, you're back from Florida. I am. Where it seemed to me you spent most of your time hanging out in donut shops.
1: Well, you know, they got Dunkin' Donuts down there, and that's one of the only things I really miss about uh, living in New York City, was a Dunkin' Donuts, like every block and a half, and they do
0: that down in Florida. So yeah, I'm going to take advantage of that. Now, did you, uh, you brought nerd ropes with you this, this week to record the CME? You brought one for me, so thank, thanks a lot. You're welcome. These nerd ropes from Florida?
1: No, these nerd ropes are from the punk rock truck stop down the street. Okay.
0: Got the nerd ropes, which we've both had a bite of, by the way, they promised themselves to be full of, it's a, it's a, a, a chewy rope covered with tiny, tangy nerds, is what it says on the side of the package. Having tasted it, I think we can both say they're not lying. Them shits is tangy. This shit is quite tangy. Very enjoyable. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. Oh, wait, no, I gotta tell you about the music, Ben.
1: Ah. By all goddamn means. This week's
0: music music comes to us from our old pal Marco Bucci. Uh Uh-oh. Friend of the podcast and the artist who created the original prize in the CME White Elephant Essay Contest, The Painting of Anderson Silva. Master artiste. As I'm sure you all remember. He was also a finalist. In the CME music contest, uh, so basically just dominating everything that we do. Yeah, and now he has sent in a few songs from his songwriting effort called Marco Bucci and the Disbanded Project. Here's here's he writes how it goes. Basically, it goes like this: I write a song, invite friends over, we learn and record song, disband. Huh? Okay. So if you like what you hear, a bunch of those songs are available at uh, disbanded.bandcamp.com. And as usual, we will put the link to that up on co-main-event.com when we get all this stuff posted on the internets later on tonight. Does
1: Marco Bucci ever just sit around and watch TV or just do something not super creative
0: and awesome? No, he's just too busy dominating at life. I guess. All right, now I can do this. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main-event podcast. In round number one, well, they did it. The so-called experts said it couldn't be done. But Ryan Bader and Ovent St. Prue managed to go out there on Saturday night and have a fight where everybody lost. And in round number two, it's the moment we've all been waiting for. After much public outcry, Rafael Dos Años finally fights in a UFC main event. And in round number three, the main event of Fight Night 48 on Saturday in Macau, Macau, puts us all in kind of a weird position, man. We're not used to feeling bad for Michael Bisping. Oh. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But like we always do about this time, right now let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from O'Malley. No first name. So... Probably some hard-ass G from the streets of Boston.
1: Yeah, or like a leader of a biker gang, maybe?
0: Yes. (laughs) Leader of a biker gang in the fictional country of Ireland. Yes. Do they have
1: motorcycles over there? Not yet, but I hear they're going to get them in 2015. They're on the boat? Yeah. They're on the way over? They're on a steamship right now.
0: O'Malley writes, I had no idea that the barbarian horde specialized in winning fights that had no business winning. Ouch. Discuss this shit, and whether Tim Boach is truly deserving of being one of Chad's guys, let alone a UFC fighter. Well, you know, harsh indictment. Yeah. Of the barbarian.
1: Yeah. Uh, I I know you were, I'm sure, jumping up and down on your couch when uh, Tim Boach pulled off that come from behind victory, weren't you?
0: Well, let me directly address this question about whether or not Tim Boach is worthy of being one of my guys, because he absolutely is. And let me tell you why. We're dealing with a borderline Dundasso situation here with Tim Boach constantly coming from out of nowhere to win fights that, as O'Malley writes, he has no business winning. He's behind against Brad Tavares just terribly this weekend, uh, comes, comes out with the, with the, uh, I saw someone on Twitter wrote that it looked like he just le- stuck out his left hand and shouldered it into Brad Tavares' face uh, and not- ended up knocking Brad Tavares out. His his win previous to that was a split decision over C.B. Dalloway. His win previous to that was a split decision over Hector Lombard. And his win previous to that was that come-from-behind TKO against Yushin Okami. He's got three losses sprinkled in there as well. So when you think about it, Tim Boach is pretty close to being 0-7 in his last (laughs) seven UFC fights. But he's not, though. I mean, we could do that to anybody. And, you know, it's
1: one thing when we do it to somebody like Benson Henderson where he's winning, like, close split decisions over and over again or was until his most recent fight. And you could say, okay, well, you get one little, you know, one different judge in there, and the guy could be zero and four, and his title defenses or something. But this is one where, like, hey, sure, he might be losing the the beginning of these fights, but he's coming back
0: and knocking people out. Right? You can't you can't take that away from him. I'm just saying, I want to figure out the secret so I can put it in the Dundaso manual because I feel like getting the shit beat out of you for a while and then just being like, oh, you know what, ding, I win, uh, is a pretty awesome and B could be useful to Dundaso practitioners everywhere.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. I
0: mean, I think that
1: the main ingredient there is just freaking out and going Donkey Kong on people. Uh, it probably helps to be like just a strong ass tough dude that Tim Boach obviously is. You see his face by the end of that fight? You know he's going to go to the, the Buffalo Wild Wings in and, and Banger, Maine to, to his after party uh, and he's going to roll up there looking like something out of a horror movie. I think that's awesome. I'm I, all about it. I, I will I will not sit here and let anybody say that Tim Boach is not deserving of being a UFC fighter. No. Uh, at least not yet.
0: I think it's awesome too uh And it kind of reminds me of, do you remember when George St. Pierre had the quote a while ago? I can't remember in what context, but he was basically like, I don't know why these guys spend so much time, like, working out, lifting weights and stuff. The way that you win fights is basically just be by being an athletic freak. Like, you just have to be, like, one of the best wrestlers in the world, regardless of whether or not you have any formal training in wrestling. You just have to be better and faster <laughs> so, than the other guy. So, step one, be born with good genetics. Step one, be George St. Pierre. Okay. I feel like this Tim Boach thing is kind of like that, where, like, the secret to winning fights, I don't know, man, just just knock the other guy out. Just end up knocking the other guy out somehow.
1: Yeah. Just, uh, when you, once you get tired of losing, uh, say
0: screw it and win. Uh, next question this week comes to us from John Joe Carter. He writes another one bites the dust with Krzysztof Soszynski joining the growing number of fighters retiring due to concerns for his mental well-being and longevity. Is there anything the UFC can do to better support their own fighters? It's been almost three years since the Polish experiment suffered his first real knockout, and he still can't remember the fight as well as other issues. If you were the UFC, would you bring in any additional measures such as mandating longer layoffs after a KO loss? Uh, increasing fighter education around brain injury. Please discuss, you know, this, uh, this is kind of starting to pile up a little bit here with the fighter retirements citing either, uh, some kind of debilitating, uh, damage as a result of their involvement in, in, in MMA and, or the Mark Bocek retirement that we just had last week, uh, where he basically said he thinks 90% of guys in the sport are on steroids. Uh, you know, we could discuss the, uh, the veracity of that, I suppose, if we wanted to. Uh, but the thing about this, about like a Krzysztof Chyszynski situation, it always brings me back to the idea that While no one's putting a gun to these guys' heads and making them get in there and fight, they're doing it of their own volition. They're choosing to be part of this sport. And on some level, they must inherently understand the dangers. Uh, It it strikes me as a vastly different situation from like NFL football, where guys are sustaining this, you know, similar brain trauma and, and concussions and stuff like that. But in the NFL, Even if you are the lowest level practice squad guy out there, uh, you're making enough money to kind of make it seem worthwhile, I would think, if you are, you know, consciously making the decision to sacrifice your own health for, like, your financial well-being and the future financial well-being of your family. That doesn't happen in MMA. Like, these guys don't get paid enough, in my opinion, to sort of justify that. So whenever I see, like, a guy like Krzysztof Chyszynski come out and, and say that he's having these memory issues and stuff like that, I always feel pretty bad for him, man, because I know that these guys you know are coming out of this sport probably without too much to show for it, at least financially in the bank, so like I always wonder like, ah man, I wonder if a dude like like that thinks it's worth it once he's all he's finished with the his career
1: so your concern is that. In MMA, they're not making enough money to permanently ruin their brains. How much money would be enough for you Honestly, to have yes. your brain not work? Yeah,
0: don't make light of that. Like, that's a that's an actual serious point. <laughs> okay, like, that's the, only, that's the only point in favor of football. Like, how, that's why guys play football. How much money would I have to give you
1: uh, in order for you to basically turn in your working brain for a non-functioning one, uh, which will kill you soon, either uh, through... What it does to like wreck your impulse control or or just gradually like deteriorate your health. How much money would I have to give you in order for you to do that? Because I think that if we're like the kind of the severity of the brain injuries we're talking about, I don't know if there is such a thing as
0: enough money for that. That's what the guys who play in the NFL say ask them to a man that's what they say okay like when 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 hbo real sports does their brain injury stories there's always an nfl lineman on there talking about how he's making an investment in the future of his family they talk about that all the time
1: okay so if we're saying that the the problem is that there's just not enough money in mma to justify uh the the toll then are are we saying that basically nobody should do mma
0: yeah like i think that's obvious (laughs) mma
1: journalist chad dundas Breaking news no one should ever do this sport
0: well i mean when you look at it and you you start to see the the like i said at the beginning these guys these physical injuries start to pile up. I mean, like I said, these guys are making this choice to do this of their own volition. But at the same time, like the longer that this thing goes on and the more evidence and information we start to get about the physical toll that it exerts on the athletes, you can't sit across the table from me right now and tell me that that doesn't detract from your enjoyment of the sport.
1: It does. And I mean, but it also detracts from my enjoyment of NFL football, regardless of how much more money they're making i mean it's still like i I definitely would say that i am less of a football fan now uh than i was you know 10 years ago before we knew all the brain stuff and even back then you could say like will do you think this is good do you think this is good for people's brains you know even if they got helmets on just uh running full speed and cracking their heads against each other i mean it's we can use that same kind of argument like hey don't kid yourself we know this is not good for you we know this is not good for your long-term health uh we knew that even before we had like the the actual evidence and actual names for this stuff uh to refer to i mean i think the thing i hear this a lot when i talk to fighters i don't think that they are doing it so much as investments in the future they're doing it for right now they're not doing it like we tend to think of it in, in these terms of like you're doing it so that you can get this money for later when you can't do this anymore. Like that's what, how you and I think. Like that you, you do something for money, you make a sacrifice for money now so that you, you don't have to make that sacrifice later on and you can go spend your money and, and have your you know not remember what you had for breakfast that morning. But they're not thinking of it that way. They're doing it right now because they really enjoy doing it right now. Uh, I mean, I, I do agree that it's, it's really sad when you see them get to the end of this sport and their, their time in the sport and they don't really have anything. Especially, I think the thing that is the big difference is you look at the new collective bargaining agreement for the NFL players. And what is it like if you're on a, a roster three consecutive years, uh, starting from some point, then you basically get to be on their health insurance plan for life. And that's the kind of stuff that worries me with fighters is that once you get out, regardless of, you know, just how much cash you got to stockpile, Uh, while you're an active fighter, now you have to worry about your health, uh, and, you know, who's gonna take care of you. And that's the thing that's not there for, for MMA fighters that is there in other organized sports.
0: Right. So you just said the exact same thing I said. No, no, I did not. Yeah, say yes, the exact you same. did. No, so I mean, you so for you it's all about health insurance. It's not just all so about no, they is. have health insurance at the end. So that makes it better, but it's don't a, talk
1: about money cuz that would be ridiculous. My point is like I think that the pe- the kind of people who want to do this stuff were the same kind of people who wanted to do it back when you were basically going to make enough money to cover your emergency room bills at the end of the night. I mean, I don't think that Anybody is, is really getting into this because they think it's a sound financial decision, with the possible exception of John Jones, uh, and he can actually make it work. I, I just think that uh, we are applying a logic to it that they don't apply. Well, that could be. <laughs> Thank you for conceding that point. Although, uh, back to, to the, the question a little bit, though, um, about what – what the UFC could or should do, like mandating longer layoffs after knockouts um, or increasing fighter education around brain injury. I think they're actually pretty good about the increasing fighter education stuff. I mean, we talk here uh, that they bring up some of that stuff at the summit. They uh, encourage all the fighters to participate in that Lou Ruvo Cleveland Clinic uh, brain health study. Um, So I think that the UFC does a a pretty good job about that. I do think, though, that maybe uh, eventually... The UFC is going to have to do something like, like you see the NFL getting a lot more aware of, um, trying to diagnose concussions and keep people out of action when they see that, that they're in that vulnerable state. I think the UFC is going to have to do some of that. And it's interesting now to see when this stuff gets brought up, like Dana White in the scrum this weekend when this stuff got brought up, uh, and also talking about Gray Maynard and, his reaction is just kind of like it seems like he's maybe seeing the end game here and is setting himself up for uh, that eventually he might be in an NFL lawsuit type situation, just kind of setting himself up like saying, hey, we all knew this was bad for you. No one ever kidding themselves that pro fighting was a, a good, healthy thing for your brain. Um, kind of like, hey, these guys know what they're getting into kind of thing.
0: Well, that makes as good a transition as any to the next question from Luke Hanwell or Hanwell. He writes... Do you feel like it should be the end of the road for Gray Maynard? If so, what do you feel he will be most remembered for? It has indeed been a tough road for Bradley Gray Maynard, uh, who we saw go out on Saturday night and, uh, get TKO'd in the second round by Ross Pearson, uh, in a fight that hadn't really been going that poorly for Gray Maynard, but that's another one of those things that contributes to, uh, this view of him getting near the end of, the end of his rope. It's kind of like the, uh, the Chuck Liddell knockout against, uh, Rich Franklin when uh, Liddell had had come out and was doing okay in the fight, but then you know got hit by a shot that didn't seem like it would have knocked out the Iceman of old, but ended up ending his night on, on, on that night. Uh, kind of a similar situation here for Gray Maynard now, who's lost three in a row, all by uh, uh, first or second round TKO. Uh, and it, it does feel like it's sort of getting to the end of the road for him. Uh, he's 35 years old now and has been doing this uh, for a long time, Uh, got got into the UFC after the Ultimate Fighter five. I think it probably goes without saying that the thing he will be remembered for is coming as close as humanly possible to winning the UFC lightweight championship without actually winning it.
1: No, that's not what he'll be remembered for.
0: No, what will he be remembered for? Uh,
1: Knocking himself out against Rob Emerson and then later claiming in the octagon while they were showing the replay of him clearly being knocked out that he was never knocked
0: out. No.
1: Okay. Maybe that's just what I want him to be remembered for, (laughs) uh, which uh, at one point, uh, one of uh, our mutual friends dubbed that uh, "maynarding" when you were clearly saying something that can be obviously disproven even as you're saying it, uh, and yet you're sticking to that claim. Uh, No, I think you're right. That's probably what he'll be uh, remembered for. Although, you know, you look at how some of these these knockouts, I, I went back and kind of looked at it because I felt like, in my mind, it happened over a longer span But it didn't really. I mean, the, you know, his first non self-induced knockout was that Frankie Edgar, uh, the, the trilogy fight in October 2011. And then this run of three knockouts, um, basically three pretty bad knockouts in a little less than a year and a half. Uh, it was, that happened a little quicker than I, than I remembered it. Uh, and that's the kind of stuff that makes you wonder, like, would he have benefited from some mandated time off?
0: The next question comes from Michael Cooing. He writes with the Jones versus Cormier fight being postponed. Alexander Gustafson is sitting on the sidelines considering that Gustafson has fought, has last fought in March of 2014. Uh, you would have to assume he's going to take another fight. Now here's the question. Do you make him fight Anthony Johnson? Uh, which would be the fight to make if you wanted to have a clean cut number one contender. Or do you stay away from that matchup because both, because both guys are legit contenders already and you would basically have to eliminate one of the guys you could sell as a title challenger in a division where the champion, considering John Jones keeps his belt, has beaten most of the top ranked fighters. You know, then, uh, I don't know if this, a uh, question came in before or after. Oh, no, it did. It came in after the John Jones-Cormier fight had been postponed. But even before that, when Alexander Gustafson was injured, uh, I thought right at that moment I would be surprised if he didn't wind up fighting Alexander Gustafson just because of how the timelines Anthony were. Anthony
1: Johnson, you mean? Alexander Gustafson would end up fighting Anthony Johnson.
0: Yes, Okay. A- Anthony Johnson. Uh, just because of how the timelines worked out. Uh, because, you know, he's not going to be out that long with his knee injury. Uh, it was already going to be until late September that Jones and Cormier were going to fight. Uh, I had kind of taken it for granted that the UFC was going to make that fight or another fight. Although I see, you know, where Michael Cooing is coming from here just because it's not as though the light heavyweight division is overflowing with quality top contenders. Right. Uh, so I, you know, I don't think that I would really have a problem with it either way because I think that the Alexander Gustafson, Anthony Johnson loser still comes out as a viable contender. It's just going to take him a, a fight or two to kind of re- rehabilitate that image.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like the same way that I could I could argue it both ways, that on one hand, I mean, if you tell me right now that you're not going to really do anything with Gustafson or Anthony Johnson and that they're both going to wait their, their uh, turn in line for a shot at the title, I'd say, okay, cool, I'd like to see both those guys get a crack at the title uh but I think if they if you do have Gusson fight uh one more time, then it has to be somebody like Anthony Johnson. Don't do the thing where you book him against somebody uh you know just for the hell of it just to keep him busy because. You know, what happens if if he loses that fight? Then, you know, you have to put him in a fight with somebody where, wh- whichever way it goes, uh, that person gets to be the the next title contender. You know, don't do the thing where it's a number one contender fight for one guy and not for the other guy. Uh, and if they do make a fight like that, I mean, for one thing, might have a little difficulty talking
0: uh, Lusty Gusty into that one right yeah, now. it sounds like he says he wants to wait.
1: So. Yeah. And you know what, though? I mean, I think that the one thing that bothers me is when... Uh, guys say that and Dana White's initial, his immediate reaction always is to try to pressure them into not doing that. And you see why for, for, you know, makes his business easier if those guys will get in there and fight one more time. But a guy who was Sitting there, was given the number one contender st- spot, and, and had it taken away from an injury, I think that you ought to respect his decision if he wants to sit there and wait. I mean, if, it's not, if we're not talking two years or something like that, if we're talking you know a matter of six months, if he, if he feels fine waiting, if he feels like that's the better career move for him, uh, I just think it's a little ugly when a fight promoter starts pressuring a dude to fight when he doesn't want to fight.
0: Yeah, well, when you do a thousand shows... That's gotta true. Have, gotta have warm bodies. I do
1: literally one thousand shows.
0: The next question, last question this week, comes to us from Mike Sullivan. He writes, "A uh, Mike Sullivan, I feel like, is probably in O'Malley's biker gang." Yeah, but he's like a, a pledge, right? A Silly? Yeah, yeah, he's just a prospect. Bellator is getting back into women's MMA? Are you fucking kidding me? Apparently, Scott Coker is hoping that Gina Carano doesn't make weight again so he can take a peek behind the towel once more. Ouch. Really, though, is there enough quality women fighters to occupy three women's organizations, or will this just put Legacy FC on notice? Please discuss. Uh do you think he means Invicta? Yeah, I was wondering that. Uh, there. See, I, I I went the other way when I found out this news, and we wrote about it in the Breakfast of Champions this week. I thought this was a shrewd move from Bellator uh, to not only re- restart its its women's division, uh, but to, to restart its women's division at 145 pounds, which is a division that the UFC doesn't even have right now. Uh, and so Bellator is going to have this opportunity. Obviously, I think we found out today uh, after Scott Coker went on the uh, the Fortnite uh, that the the Gina Carano rumor seems like much ado about kind of nothing at this point. But, uh, I think it is kind of a shrewd move on Bellator to have this 145 pound division where, uh, you're, it's probably gonna look kind of attractive to a lot of fighters assuming that they can get paid comparably to what they would be paid in the UFC to like not have to cut as much weight because it basically, if you want to fight in the UFC right now and and you're a a female fighter and not a straw weight, uh, you pretty much have to fight at 135, regardless of how that weight cut is for you. So I think if, you know, if there are, are women that would rather fight at 145 pounds and they get paid, you know, something similar to what they would be getting paid in the UFC, uh, that Bellator probably looks like a fairly attractive option depending on how the, the women's division starts to shape up. And I think that it looks like an, a fairly attractive option to both to Gina Carano and maybe to uh, cyborg Justino for uh, the two women that are largely viewed as the, as the big ticket commodities out there right now to a not to have to get your arms ripped off by Ronda Rousey. If you're Gina Carano and to be able to fight at 145 if you're cyborg since she's always made a, a big deal about how she doesn't know if she could make 135.
1: Wait, are you suggesting that they might do it again, brother? Sister? Do it again, sister?
0: Well, I don't think anyone wants to see that,
1: right? I would watch that.
0: You would watch that? No, I mean, I was thinking for Carano, like... The, wouldn't, don't you think it would be in Bellator's best interest If they had a chance at Carano To sort of like prop her up a little bit Because the thing that really makes the Gina Carano To the UFC dot 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 Question mark headline on every uh, Message board is that it doesn't make any goddamn sense right because they're going to bring her in And just job her off to Ronda Rousey And you would have to make if you were Gina Carano Just a fucking shit pile of money Which off I assume that fight.
1: is why That's probably the, the sticking point yeah. right yeah. So but, like yeah.
0: it seems better for both Gina Carano And for Bellator if, if this thing were a reality to like come in and give her a couple of of opponents that you reasonably think she could beat
1: well i think the the question though are there enough quality women fighters to to occupy three different organizations is a good one especially if you're talking about the 145 division because there just there aren't a ton of good 145 pound female fighters you know the most of the talent is a little further down the scale uh so i wondered about that too but also i feel like it's still going to be good for women's MMA in general for Bellator to get back in the game. Because right now, if you're looking at either the UFC or Invicta, Invicta just doesn't have enough events uh, to keep you busy if you're a fighter. Uh, And the UFC, you know, they'll throw one women's fight on here or there. uh, And, you know, right now still only one, you know, you you got two divisions, one of which is still kind of still getting ramped up. So, I mean, I feel like... You need—it's a kind of a chicken and the egg problem where you need to have those opportunities in order for there to be more women who get into to women's MMA uh, seriously at the professional level, um, but also you need to have enough women to really build out these divisions of different organizations.
0: Here's what I wonder about Invicta. Obviously, they have a broadcast deal with the UFC to be on Fight Pass and have been—I don't know if if cool is the right word for it—but have been pretty cool about releasing their fighters when they think that, uh, or, you know, letting their their fighters go to the UFC in order for the bigger, better opportunity there. Do you think that Invicta takes that same track if if the organization is Bellator? Like, are they going to be as open to letting, they have a 145 pound division over there, right, in Invicta? Yes, they do. Do you, you think that they would be as cool with letting their women's featherweights out of their contracts to go for a bigger better opportunity if it's Bellator or Hell no you think that, you no. think that there's a little uh pressure coming down from the top there? I think there was
1: more than a little pressure I think Invicta lives uh in the UFC shadow and knows it and and knows that it cannot afford to alienate the UFC or do anything that that the UFC will look unkindly upon so yeah I don't I don't see there being quite the same uh exchange of talent uh between Bellator and Invicta
0: that seems like it could create sort of a sticky political situation if you are an Invictive fighter, especially if you are a 145 pound woman, women's fighter who, you know, could very well want to go to Bellator to fight on Spike TV and, and get that exposure. Uh, it's, you know, that, that, I would have to assume that's on some of their minds right now, that that could be a weird uh, limbo to kind of be caught in. And
1: it could be, because especially on one hand, you think, well, if I sign with Invicta, then there's always a chance that I'll, you know, I'll get passed on to the UFC uh, and it'll just be, a, you know, a great opportunity there. And if I sign with Bellator, then, you know, Hey, it goes from instead of having to start out on a internet stream and hoping to get promoted to, to the bigger show, I go right on to a, a you know a TV regular known uh, property. But I'm also kind of stuck there, as we've seen with other people, their concerns about Bellator in the past. So I mean, a lot of stuff to consider. There uh, could be a lot of tough choices for some female fighters coming up.
0: Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, a concern that you would like to air to the CoMain Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, CoMainEvent.com, uh, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. While you're there, you could sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday, and it catches you up on the wacky and wild news and notes that we miss every week from Monday to Monday. You know, when we usually record the show as for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Then Ryan Bader walked away from fight night 47 on Saturday night with a, a unanimous decision win over Oven St. Prue In a fight that wasn't really that close. And uh, by the time it was over, it was after 1 in the morning over on the East Coast after 11 p.m. here in the One True Time Zone. One of the things I thought immediately after this was over was that, A, like I said last week, I felt like this was a fight that Ryan Bader absolutely should win, and frankly one where I thought uh he really could have used a stoppage in fighting a guy who's obviously as incomplete as Ovin St. Prue. Uh, but at the end, I wasn't entirely sure that Ryan Bader did anything at all to improve his stock in the uh, light heavyweight division. Obviously getting a win is better than the alternative, but... uh When you look at the result of this, do you feel like he shapes up as even close to a legitimate uh, opponent for somebody like Anthony Johnson or Alexander Gustafson, since those are the two elite light heavyweights right now that that need fights?
1: No, I think you get murdered by both those guys. And I think the thing is, too, that because uh, Ryan Bader... Got pretty easily dominated by a, a very earlier version of John Jones, maybe the John Jones 1.5, uh, or something. You know, it seems like one of those things where how could you put him in something like a number one contender fight? Because if he wins and you have to put him against John Jones, man, ain't nobody paying for that. They'll, they already feel like they know how it's going to go. I mean, I think that that's kind of, it's kind of cruel and, and maybe unfair in some ways, but it seems like. At this point, the MMA community has more or less made up their minds about Ryan Bader, that he's a, a, a tough guy, a good wrestler, got a lot of skills. He can make you look absolutely terrible in there, as he did to both Fajal uh, and Owen St. Pru. made them both look like they just didn't want to be in there and that they were going to say, fine, I'll take the loss. Just let me, let me get out of here and go home. Uh, so you got to give him his due dabs for that. I mean, he's doing something right to be able to do that, but at the same time, I mean, I don't know how many more main events people are really going to want to see this guy in.
0: Yeah. And you know, last week, I feel like on this show and in a thing that I wrote for, uh, Bleacher Report, I kind of, ob- uh, argued the opposite for a while. I was like, you know, I feel like Ryan Bader gets a bad rap from MMA fans who, who kind of shortchange him as a known commodity. You know, the guy's only 31 years old and most of his losses have come against either the guys who are future or, or previous champions or number one contenders. So. I kind of tried to follow this track. Like Ryan Bader could still be somebody at light heavyweight, but I came away from this fight feeling the exact opposite of that. Honestly, after watching him do the damn thing against Oven St. Prue for 25 full minutes, uh, I came away from it feeling like, well, this is who this guy is. Like he is in fact, a known commodity and he's not going to change his stripes at this point in his career. And that is that he's a big, tough guy. Who's a good wrestler, but is still pretty limited. Um, and that does feel a little bit unfair, but at the same time, it's like we have an awful lot of evidence now to support the <laughs> right. idea that that this is who Ryan Bader is going to be for the duration of his career. Uh and, You know, he came into this fight ranked number eight in the official rankings. I assume, I haven't looked at him, I don't know if they came out today, I assume he's going to go up a little bit. But that, again, I think because of, like you said, I don't know if anybody's ever going to pay to watch him fight John Jones or even be interested in him as a main event attraction Seems like it leaves few options, or at least few good options. Right. And, you know, then you got John Jones sitting
1: at home on his Twitter clowning Ryan Bader and Ovin St. Prue. And
0: and Anthony Johnson did the same thing. He sent out a tweet that was like, that was boring, that's all I've got to say. Yeah, and you can't really argue with that too
1: much. I mean, especially it seemed like and the this fight started off interestingly enough. It seemed like you, you know, we might see some some good action there in the first and second round. Uh and then Bader seemed to just kind of realize like, "Oh, I can just kind of throw this guy down whenever I want." All right, I'll do that. And by the the fourth round, it looked like Ovin St. Pru had kind of decided that he had lost. I mean, you see when he gets back to his corner after the fourth round and his corners attempt to, to, to fire him up there. Uh, for one thing, he got homeboys sitting over there with two hats on. One dude is wearing two hats. Uh, and uh, then, you know, it's basically just like high school football coach uh, halftime locker room speech just yelling at him, thinking that that's going to get him fired up. And you could just see the look on his face where he was like, dude, come on. This Uh, night is already bad enough.
0: Okay, well, let's talk about that. That, I think we can use that as a segue here to talk about Ovin St. Prue. My initial response to that was, dude, you know what time it is? My baby is asleep. Why are you yelling like that? (laughs) Don't make me mute you. Uh, But here's the thing that I find that is kind of shocking about Ovin St. Prue is that he's gotten this far in mixed martial arts. 16 and 6. Had won five fights in a row before he get got this loss to Ryan Bader, uh, and you know, had only had one loss dating back to 2010 against Gegard Musasi back in Strike Force. He's come this far and he looks as good as he does when it kind of seems like 85% of the time he has no idea what he's doing. Like, yeah. He 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 looks like such a raw product out there that it's amazing to me that he's been as successful as he has, and you think to yourself, is this a situation where this guy could just take flight, take wings and fly. If he got himself into a Greg Jackson type situation or like a, uh, uh, you know, black zillion situation with, with, uh, uh, the coaches that they've got down there or, you know, anyone that could apparently teach him some takedown defense since that wasn't really there for him in this, in this Ryan Bader fight. Uh, so when you see Ryan, or I'm, Elvin St. Pru's coach screaming at him like that in the corner and like kind of slapping him, right? Didn't he slap him, like slap him on the chest or something like that? Yeah, yeah. At yeah. one
1: point. And slapped the other guy too. The other guy in the corner. Yeah, he,
0: oh, that's what it was. He did slap the other guy in the corner, which is a dope corner man move, by the way. <laughs> Putting that on my list of dope corner man moves. Slap the other corner man.
1: <laughs> Wearing two hats. Is yes. that also
0: on there? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, did you feel like that made him look a little Bush League? With the yelling and the slapping and stuff like that. Maybe I was just imposing my feeling that like after watching Ovin St. Prue kinda go out there and look like an unshaped piece of clay, I was kinda like, Well, this guy needs to be somewhere else. And maybe I had already decided that when Cornerman yeah. One slaps Cornerman <laughs> two. But that's when I was like, Okay, yeah, we need to we need to get ourselves into a better situation than than what's happening here.
1: Yeah, that could be. I mean, I don't know, I don't wanna uh, extrapolate too far. Right. Based we have no on... idea what's
0: going on in their camp, or, or right. really even who those guys were. So I don't <laughs> want to totally dog them out, but at the same time, a dude who looks appears to the naked eye to be as talented as Ovin Saint. Say Perl.
1: athletic and explosive. That's what you mean.
0: That's, that's not what I mean. That's what you mean. No, you're racist. Uh, but uh, I mean, like he seems like a guy who should be at a top camp getting the kind of instruction where he could put that athletic explosiveness to work. There it is.
1: There it is. You know, this is one of the things, though, that I heard a lot when I was down at ATT uh, because, you know, it's one thing that you get a lot of good coaching at those big gyms and that there just are a lot of coaches. Like, you know, on their sparring day, you look around and there's like six coaches on the mat. uh, And so everybody gets a lot of attention. But also the thing that makes it such a huge difference is you look around on those mats and you're just like, Okay, that guy's a uh, um, like top fifteen or top ten UFC fighter, so is that guy, that guy, that guy. There's you know, Dustin Poirier uh sparring with uh, Bellator uh lightweight champ Will Brooks. I mean everybody is just in there in a dog fight every single day. And to hear some of those guys talk about it, um, that doesn't work for everybody. That sometimes they'll get guys that'll come down there uh, and, as they put it, just get swallowed up. And uh, they'll get their asses kicked and they leave. They don't thrive under that. But the other people, uh, the people who, who come down there, go through that ass-kicking period uh, and then stay, end up getting a lot better because of it. And, I mean, that's your coaches, I think, can only take you so far. If you're the best dude in the gym or the best dude on the mats every day, you know, you're just not going to get that much better. And maybe, you know, he just feels comfortable there for for various reasons, but it does seem like if you want to compete at that level, then you need to be competing at that level against other people who are doing it every single day.
0: Yeah, I I like, honestly, it's the same way that I felt about Brock Lesnar, even down the stretch in his UFC career, where it just seemed like he was a guy, well, he was the champion, so obviously he lived up to a lot of his potential, but, you know, he was a -a one-of-a-kind athlete, Uh, you just just being as big as he was and, and as agile and as quick. And it just didn't seem like he got the right instruction because he didn't, uh, want to make the sacrifice to leave Minnesota and go to other camps and get really high quality coaching and different kinds of coaching from different people who could have maybe helped him in the striking game or helped his overall MMA skills. Uh, and I don't know that that's the case with Ovin St. Prue, but as a dude who was a former University of Tennessee, uh, football player, uh, uh, and I believe still lives and trains in Tennessee, it just kind of seems to me like he would be best served to, to at least go out there and, and see, see what's out there. Because if you're a guy like that. And you end up kind of bottoming out in the UFC after starting off on this role, and 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 definitely feeling like you're a guy that can hang with the the top level fighters in the UFC. Wouldn't you feel like you had cheated yourself a little bit if you didn't make it, and you were like, well, maybe I should have gone out there and 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 you know seen if I could have benefit from from a different place?
1: Yeah. Also, I mean, maybe this is one of those learning experiences in that way and other ways because this is the the. The toughest test that he's faced since being in the UFC. And, uh, we saw how it went for him. Maybe, maybe it's easy to tell yourself like, Hey, I'm doing fine here. Fuck everybody who says that I need to go to, uh, one of these super camps and, and train there. Look at, look at me stacking up these wins, getting von Flu chokes on people and whatnot. I'm doing fine. Everybody shut up. Then you go out there against a guy like Bader, uh, and, uh, just get, you know, ragdolled around the cage and, and held down there. Maybe that's the thing that makes you wake up and realize, Maybe I'm going to hit the road a little bit here and, and, and see some other spots.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, he is a dude that I want to see more from and, and you know, want to see if if he's able to have an evolution uh, as he moves forward in the sport. Well, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week?
1: Well, Chad, as we talked about uh, on last week's show, uh, it was that darned Alistair Overeem who injured uh, John Jones in training. Thanks, Overeem. Sport killer. Sport killer Alistair Overeem. Now, uh, via a translated interview from some Russian website, I saw this on the UG today, Andre Arlovsky uh, saying that, uh, you know, he doesn't want, as he says, I'm not big on telling tales out of school, uh, but but I'm, not, a, not, I'm not. about to do that uh, because he talks about how... Uh, just a couple days earlier, he he says, I sparred with Overeem and learned such outcome by my own experience. Usually, sparring partners don't try to inflict a real damage to each other, but Overeem at one moment kneeed me really hard in the stomach. In a real fight, I could have been KO'd after that. I rushed to a hospital to make sure my, my ribs are not broken. Thank God, everything was all right. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, it was really unexpected and so dirty, I wanted to have my revenge on him at first, at least elbow him. Uh, and then it's talked out of it by his boxing coach and basically just saying that, uh, yeah, Overeem's a dirty guy and trained and he will hurt people. Uh I'm just saying, are you fucking kidding me, Overeem? You've been at Jackson's how long and people are already talking smack on you? Thanks, Overeem. You're just screwing it up everywhere you go, man. Are you fucking kidding me? Play nice. Play nice Overeem.
0: Wow, kicking the ream while he's down, dude. I mean I guess he's not down. Everyone that he no, trains with is All down. his training
1: partners are down for six to eight. Thanks, weeks. Overeem.
0: Uh well Ben, I know that you know that your guys over at Bare Knuckle Boxing did some (laughs) guys, huh? Yeah. Well you've talked about them on the on the podcast in the past. Yeah, no those are my guys. I believe in glowing terms. You couldn't (laughs) wait for the pay per view. Uh they did some rebranding this week or or recently came and came we became aware of it this week changed their name to a uh, big knockout boxing i assume so they wouldn't have to throw out all of the uh bkb t-shirts they had all th- those hats made up that they've got over at the at the bkb offices and not only that but unveiled a new fighting surface where the guys in big knockout boxing will be taking each other on at the bottom of a pit genius so I hope that this allays your fears that we could be moving into a combat sports world that is pitless free of (laughs) pit combat of pit fighting never fear bare knuckle boxing which I believe is directly owned by DirecTV uh, they're keeping the pit alive thank God are you fucking kidding me like how many times have we seen the this pit thing played out how, how's it, how long is it going to be before we figure out that, that a pit is not the optimal surface for 2014 prize fighting? Have we learned nothing from Return of the Jedi? Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. All right, well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
1: Chad, fresh off the the hottest main event in literally days when we saw uh, Ryan Bader and Ovent St. Prue get down in Bangor, now turn your focus to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where your man Benson Smooth Henderson is going to take on Rafael Dos Anjos. Are you ready? Are you pumped for
0: this one? You know all. You all the don't
1: b- look that pumped. You know all
0: the big fights go down at the BOK Center. Down in Tulsa, Oklahoma.
1: Is it BOK or BOK? I, I I was unclear on that.
0: I don't know, man. I just said BOK because I don't because I don't know. <laughs> well, it's yeah. A sto- there's a storied fighting history there though. The yeah, BOK no, arena. Yeah, you, you can
1: when you're in there, you feel like granddaddy of them all. Mm-hmm. The BOK or the ghosts, possibly
0: <laughs> ghosts are swirling in the in the lights. That's right. If you look up, you can hear st- still hear Jack Dempsey whisper to you. <laughs>
1: Well, okay. This is another one of those weekends where we're gonna do the dueling fight night events here. Uh, first we're gonna th- talk about this, this Benson Henderson and Rafael Dos Anjos uh, fight. Not a bad little fight here. Uh, I mean, calling it main event stuff lets you know kind of the caliber of event we're dealing with as a whole. But, uh, especially after what we saw from Henderson in his last fight, I gotta say, I'm interested to see if, if he's turned over a new leaf here. If he's gonna go out there and be a finisher now, if this is gonna, gonna become a trend. Or if we're gonna go back to split decision territory. What's your guess?
0: Ah. Uh. Well, I mean, Rafael Dosanos is a tough dude. He is. So, very tough. I, you know, I don't know if it would be one that I would be expecting to see a finish in, but I think you're right to bring up that it's an interesting fight for Ben Henderson because that's the best thing he could do, right? Is follow up, uh, his fourth round choke out of Rustam Habalah from back in June. Also a uh, tough guy. Yeah, also a very tough guy. You know, following that up with another stoppage, I think would be the best thing that he could do because if you, otherwise, it kind of, this kind of shapes up as like a third, tough but like kind of thankless fight for him in a row because while rafael rafael dos Años has been really good in the ufc dating back to to the summer of 2012 he's six and one he's got that loss to habib Nurmagomedov, uh back in 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 uh is that was that in april yeah april yeah. of this year uh but other than that he's been pretty spotless for for a long time but at the same time i just don't think that people are hyped about him, or like maybe not ready to accept him as like a main event talent, which kind of makes me feel bad for, for Rafael Dos Años. Uh, but at the same time, Ben, if Ben Henderson comes out, and kind of cleans his clock, but maybe goes to decision. I think we have a tendency to walk away from this fight feeling like, well, that's what Ben Henderson was supposed to do. Uh, whereas if he can come out and have another dominating stoppage like he did against, against Hablov, ah, maybe then you do start to wonder if, if the criticism had gotten to him a little bit and if, that he was going out there with a little bit more urgency.
1: Well, and I, I mean, I like what he's doing now. Like he seems to have changed his least PR strategy to the point where now, uh, Benson Henderson's thing is like, hey, you think you want a lightweight title shot at some point in your future? Come through me. Like, that's a good, that's a good thing for him to do because he can tell people, look, if you beat Benson Henderson, that means something to people. That might put you on the map and get you, uh, in that line for a title shot. And so then you just become the guy who says like, okay, Bring me your contenders. Uh, bring me your, your rising stars, your, your overhyped dudes, uh, and let me just smash them all one by one until you can't ignore me anymore. I mean, I think that would be an awesome thing for him to start doing. And, you know, you got to pair that with some awkward post-fight interview stuff he's going to do where he's probably, you know, if he wins, going to get on the mic and continue his possibly imagined uh, rivalry with the the media – Uh, But I don't know. I mean, I feel like then you start to have a little bit of momentum. You start to get some stuff to look forward to when Benson Henderson fights, uh, some stuff to get into. I think when he is his own weird self, like that feels like the most authentic Benson Henderson that we get.
0: Yeah, well, you got to do something because he's still in this weird matchmaking no man's land where he's beaten everybody that he's fought, except for Anthony Pettis, who unfortunately for him happens to be the champion and who he's lost to twice. I guess really early in his career, he lost to uh, The Rock's dad, Rocky Johnson. Oh,
1: man. Well, I mean, that guy just has good bloodline.
0: Yeah, probably not the same dude. Since no, I'm sure it is. Same guy. in bad. 2007. Nope, same guy. But, uh, but, you know, you're in this weird place if if you're Ben Henderson just because, uh, you know, you're super good. But Anthony Pettis has kind of got your number the two times you've been in the cage with him. And, you know, to, to add a little icing on the shit sandwich, uh, <laughs> Anthony Pettis is also injured for most of this year and is going to fight – uh Gilbert Melendez at the at the end of the year so if you're Ben Henderson you you got a lot of time to kill here and uh the only way you're going to work your way back into another shot against Anthony Pettis or I guess whoever happens to be the champion uh is to string together a bunch of wins and preferably to do it in uh impressive fashion
1: yeah and i mean i think that uh he's off to a pretty good start with that win over uh Hobby Love and and uh, like you said, I mean, this is not going to be an easy one to finish, but if he can, then I, I feel like you, right now it seems like the thing he has to do is hope Gilbert Melendez beats Anthony Pettis because then he can press his claim by saying, I have a win over that guy. Right. Uh, you know, let's, let's do it again, brother. It was a close fight. Uh, you know, put me back in that title fight. If, if Anthony Pettis, uh, retains his title though, then you've really got to do something to get a, to a third fight at the guy. Then, I mean, you have to either be finishing people or just become like the the fly that won't stop biting at Anthony Pettis. I don't know if, if Benson Henderson really has that kind of uh, if he's willing to do to crank up the volume on his own public persona to that extent and really be that guy who keeps uh, you know getting in the media and, and pressing for his title claim. Uh, but I mean, you get a couple finishes in a row here. I think that then the one complaint everybody had about you kind of goes away then suddenly then uh,
0: i think people will be willing to reevaluate a guy like benson henderson were you surprised by the Rustam hobby love supreme court decision <laughs> you know i
1: feel like the court waded into a minefield there I'm not afraid to say that.
0: Uh, well, let's say I want to talk about Rafael Dos Anjos a little bit, because like I said at the beginning of the round, I feel like he's a guy that maybe people aren't quite ready to accept as a main event talent or maybe just a, an up and coming uh, contender that, that hasn't sparked a ton of excitement about him. Uh, like kind of the anti-Habib Nurmagomedov, right? Because Habib is a dude where everyone seems like they're hyped about him. We're super excited to have him fight uh, uh, Cowboy Cerrone before he blew his knee out. Uh, and you know Rafael Dos Anjos, who who you can't help but notice has a win over the Cowboy last year, last summer, almost exactly a year ago. Uh, but is a guy that like, eh, I don't know. It seems like people could really kind of take or leave. And, You're
1: saying that what he needs is a funny hat
0: or a hype man, you know? Okay. I don't know, but I just who like, has
1: a funny hat?
0: Who has a funny hat?
1: And then wears another hat on top of that hat.
0: Maybe a video of him wrestling a bear when he was a kid. Do you think that's out there?
1: You know, I mean, maybe we want to be a little more original. Maybe a a video of him, like, wrestling a Panther, something like that. You can't, you gotta, you gotta mix it up a little bit.
0: Well, what is it, do you think, about Rafael Dos Años that doesn't inspire that much uh, excitement? Is it because, you know, he's uh, a fairly stock brazilian guy is it because he has a bunch of decisions in a row before the the victory over jason high like what is it why why are we a little bit slow to wrap our loving arms around Rafael dos anos
1: tell me what you know about him other than what's on his actual win-loss record
0: i know that his name is Rafael souza dos anos does that help
1: no well, it does, actually, because it proves to me that you know nothing about him. Nobody really. Nobody you know that like, he you know,
0: loves dirt biking. He loves to get out there, take his shirt off, hit the mud track. I don't even know if you're making this up. Right. <laughs> of course I'm making
1: it up, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did it with such sincerity, I, you almost had me for a second. Uh Yeah, see, that's, I think, the big problem is you kind of – People, if they can't look at your record and see like a bunch of awesome wins, where they feel like, oh yeah, I remember watching that one. I remember, you know, that awesome performance. When it's a bunch of decisions where you look pretty solid all around, but you know, don't make a a huge statement in the actual fight itself, then people start to look, you know, okay, where is there a persona or like something about the guy that you can kind of put your arms around? I mean, if you're if you're Cowboy Cerrone, hell man, you're the guy who swigs Budweiser and. Can't wait to get out there on the lake, man. And wears a cowboy hat. (laughs) And wears a hat. There you go, the hat thing again. Uh, you know, and then it's like, okay, yeah, so of course people are are more hyped about Cerrone than they are Dosanos, even if Dosanos has a win over him. I mean, you gotta have something where people can feel like, oh yeah, that guy, I remember him for this because of his love of dirt biking, shirtless, apparently. Uh, you know, and he doesn't have that. And he he doesn't have the big signature wins that could, could override that or take the place of that. And so instead, what you're left with is, oh yeah, that, that tough ass Brazilian guy.
0: Is he fighting this weekend? Okay. What kind of hat do you think would get it done for Dos Años? Bowler hat or top hat? Uh, tam o' shanter? Uh, kangle? Backwards, backwards kangle. <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson style. Oh man. You,
1: you brought up a bunch of really good, uh, opportunity. How about, uh, like, uh, one of those, like, construction hard hats that, that holds your be, that holds two beers on either side and then has like straws that come down into your mouth. That could be his thing.
0: That actually does seem like a, does seem like a winner. Uh, did you know Frankie Cars is on this card? What? Yeah, Frankie Cars, man. He's taking on, uh, hold on. I gotta scroll down. <laughs> uh, he's well, was taking on song. Talas Letes, oh, who well, in my brain is the same dude as Rafael Dos Años. So that's, that's good. It was like 40 pounds separating now those two <laughs> dudes. Uh, you know, actually, that is,
1: and now that I kind of look around, uh, the rest of that fight card, Mike Pyle and, uh, Jordan Meehan, I mean, that's, that's a couple, uh, tough ass white dudes just gonna get in there and throw bombs at each other's heads. I'm really right. excited
0: about that. And that one they just had to cobble together when, uh, Brandon Thatch got hurt, right? That's, that wasn't on the books before. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I look around there and Return of Ben
1: Saunders, they're on the prelim card for those of you who get Fox Sports 2, which as I learned, uh, When all the prelims were on Fox Sports 2 this past weekend and a bunch of people were on Twitter complaining about it. Seems like not a whole lot of people get.
0: No, Uh, I I don't get it. And frankly, I didn't know that it still existed because have you ever turned on Fox Sports 1 like in the middle of the day? No. No it it will boggle your mind that there could be the existence of a Fox Sports 2 because it doesn't seem like they have anything to show on Fox Sports 1. What are the they showing the in the middle of the day? Well, most they do that Mike Francesa show from New York. It's like a, they televise his radio show. Oh,
1: nothing like watch, watching somebody do radio.
0: Yeah, and he's you know, he's a He's a local New York guy. I guess they probably like some national syndication, but man, you can turn that thing, you can turn on Fox Sports One in the middle of the day and he'll just be talking about the Mets bullpen situation for like 15 minutes Riveting. and taking calls from dudes from Long Island that want to talk about whether or not Rafael Montero is the shit. <laughs> is he? Like, how, how should I know, man? We're living <laughs> out here in the, the no, the great no man's land of the West. Uh, anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Have you seen that Kung Lee and Vitor Belfort have switched bodies? Huh. How about that? It got into a Freaky Friday type situation. <laughs> That'll, happen.
1: That'll happen. That'll you, happen. You, you piss off a gypsy or like do something weird on an Indian burial ground or something. The next thing you know, you switch bodies with the cat.
0: Yeah, there was that uh, Jason Bateman rom-com from a few years ago where he and his buddy both pee in the same fountain and they switch brains or something like that. I think that happened to Vitor and, and Kung Lee. What was
1: that movie where the Dudley Moore? Where that's basically the plot, and it's like he's the the slacker son that switches bodies with his uh his uh, uptight doctor dad. Totally saw that one in a the theater. It was very formative for me.
0: Maybe we can get an answer on that before the end of the round. Work on it. See I don't what what have you can that do. right at my fingertips here. I'll, I'll get on you, the Google. I'll tell you what surprises me though, Ben, and that and maybe this is as a dude who's lived through the entire Ultimate Fighter era. It, all, it always kind of surprises me when I go to the Wikipedia and I find out that dudes like Bradley Gray Maynard and Michael Bisping are 35 years old. Bisping's been doing the damn thing in the UFC for more than eight years now, and uh, this fight against Kung Lee on Saturday night in Macau... Macau will be his 21st fight in the octagon obviously things have not gone stellar for him over the past couple years he's two and three in his last five fights although for a couple of those he was kind of at the epicenter of the trt uh controversy he lost a chael Sonnen and vitor belford but when he lost a tim kennedy in april it really felt like there was a palpable shift In career trajectory for Michael Bisping, you know, for years he was kind of hanging around the title picture. And while he never worked his way uh, into a title fight, that fight that he had against Chael Sonnen in January of 2012 was uh, billed as a title eliminator, middleweight title eliminator. Uh, so he was always a guy who was right up there. And at this point, I feel like at 35 years old, it feels a little bit like he is as far away from contender status that he, as he has been in a long time. But when I think about him fighting 42 year old Kung Lee in Macau Macau. on fight pass on Saturday night or Saturday morning here, since the main card kicks off at, I believe 7 AM in the one true time zone, uh,
1: I you keep, know you're going to be sitting there to watch Yao Zuki versus Royston Wee.
0: I keep coming back to the idea that I kind of think Michael Bisping deserves better. Does he?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Michael Bisping is way more valuable for the UFC than we realize, and this this matchup is a good example of why. Because you got a fight over there in Macau, uh, and uh, you know, coming off kicking off on a Saturday morning, when you have another fight, that's definitely a far better card all around. Uh, on actual TV, on actual Saturday night. But Bisping is a guy where you can throw him in there against somebody and you know he's going to generate some heat. And, like, he's not going to do it in a totally, like, fake chill Sonnen way either. Like, that's just his personality. Like, he's just – he's going to find a way to do that. And at first it seemed like, oh, he and Kung Lee were going to be buddy-buddy, but now here we are rolling into fight week and already it seems like that's not the case. I know because uh I get – uh every time uh Gareth A. Davies, the, the G A D, every time he writes a damn story, he emails it to everybody. Uh and so uh I, I saw his email about uh Bisping and, and Kung Lee where I don't know. Did you see this where Bisping is talking about how he met Kung Lee and he tried to be nice and polite and was really polite during Kung Lee's boring stories about how he knows Channing Tatum. Uh, and uh, then he gets he gets home, looks on the Internet, looks on UFC dot com and sees that uh, Kung Lee had talked a lot of shit about him. Uh, which, of course, like, to Bisping saying something about, like, how, you know, you think you're going to beat him and you think he's not that good, that's the kind of thing where he's going to freak out and lose his damn mind, even though he says that about other people all the time. Uh And so then there he goes. Like, he's going to... He's going to jump on there, uh, start talking a bunch of shit about how you and Channing Tatum, your boy C. Tates, aren't really as good of friends as you think, and boom, suddenly it feels like the fight actually means something when, as you said, 35-year-old Bisping coming off a loss against 42-year-old Kung Lee, who seems like he's just barely kind of hanging around for out of a lack of better ideas at this point. On paper, that's that fight shouldn't really mean much. But Bisping is a guy who will always delivered that that little special spark for you. I mean, that's valuable to the UFC.
0: I would need to to get an impartial verdict on the quote unquote shit talking from Kung Lee. Have you <laughs> yes. ever talked to Kung Lee before? Yeah, uh, super nice guy. Super nice guy. But you know, maybe Bisping is right a little bit on the boring side and I wouldn't want to necessarily hang around and hear. Although no, I'm lying. I totally would want to hear his stories about hanging out with Channing Tatum. But, uh, that seems like, I think you might be right. That seems like maybe more of a Michael Bisping invention than anything else. Although yeah. I d- didn't read Kung Lee's comments, but it's just kind of hard for me to imagine him going into full, uh, ether mode here. I mean, this is Bisping's
1: comments about, uh, Kung Lee's, apparently he says that Kung Lee was talking this stuff during a Fight Club Q&A and said he talked a load of bullshit about me. Basically, he's jumped on the same old boring bandwagon everyone else who fights me does, which is to say that I'm, what a smack talker I am. uh, While, as always, they are the ones who talk crap first. What a phony. If he had a problem with me, then he could have spared me all the boring anecdotes about Channing Tatum.
0: (laughs) Wow, that, that sounds like it really made an impression on you.
1: I him. know, I know. Oh, I mean, I, also, I would totally want to hear those anecdotes, because I imagine it's like, so... Me and Channing Tatum are in, are, me and C. Tates are in Manila and it's 4 a.m. and we can't find a taxi anywhere. You know, I mean, I, I, I want to hear that story, but the, the thing is, Bisping, man, I mean, as much as I enjoy watching that guy, I think he's a better fighter than he gets credit for. I think he's a lot of fun as a personality and he brings a lot to the table that way. Um, but dude, if everybody, uh, says what a smack talker you are, and if that's the thing that you know, oh, here they go again talking about what a smack talker I am. Don't you have to consider the possibility that maybe it's true? (laughs) It can't be just like everybody else doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. You're the only one who has the unbiased, clear-eyed view of yourself.
0: Speaking of applying outside logic on a situation where a fighter is probably not going to apply it to himself. Uh, well, you know, Bisping is no stranger to fighting internationally, I guess you could say. Uh, for a long time, he was sort of one of the major linchpins in the UFC's, uh, expansion, uh, overseas into into, uh, Europe, and he's fought in Macau, he's fought Macau. in Quebec City, he's fought in Sao Paulo, he's fought in Toronto, he's fought in Sydney, Australia, he's fought in London, he's fought in Vegas, he's fought in Manchester, England, England. Uh, <laughs> nice. so do you, do you think that this is fighting Kung Lee on a Saturday morning in Macau? Macau is this the start of a comeback for Michael Bisping to work his way back into contender status, or is this who he is now? He's a, a fight pass, a main event guy who's going to go to China and uh, create a little bit of buzz.
1: I think a lot depends on how he does against Kung Lee. If you go out there and you knock out Kung Lee in the first round, then you can get on the mic and say, okay, enough screwing around. Get me off of the internet and onto TV again. That's where I belong. Uh, but I don't know. I also think that... If there's one thing we've seen about Bisping over and over again is that he's a company guy. You know, he'll he'll do what you need him to do. And from various anecdotes I've heard, he has good reason to be so. I mean, the UFC has taken pretty good care of him financially over the years. So uh, I think that he's probably not going to get too uh, up in arms either way that goes. But I think that uh, this is absolutely a must-win fight for him. He can't go out there and get beat by 42-year-old Kung Lee on the damn internet, man. He has to win this.
0: Well, yeah, he has to win. It's interesting that you bring up first round knockout because the last fight that Michael Bisping won in the first round was against Jason Day back in 2008. So that would certainly break a streak of his if he is able to uh, beat Kung Lee in the first round. Although, you know, maybe Kung Lee's the kind of guy he can get it done against. Kung Lee hasn't fought since November 2012. Uh, but, you know, on the, I guess on the positive end of things, this kind of seems like it could be a quote-unquote fun fight. Right when when Kung Lee brings his flashy spinning shit striking style against Michael Bisping's like uh, more persistent, higher pace, uh, more straightforward kickboxing style. Right, it, it seems like you know if you're gonna if you want to say something nice about this fight, it seems like a fairly compelling matchup of style.
1: So. Yeah, no, I am interested to see how that plays out. A little bit surprised to see that uh, Bisping's like a three to one favorite in this because man, uh, as you said, you never know exactly what uh, Kung Lee might throw at you. He could could come out there and do some. Sp- crazy spinning heel kick to your gut that could kind of ruin your night. So uh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't totally count him out. I do think, though, uh, age is probably going to catch up to him around now. Uh, body's starting to wind down, maybe not taking a punch quite as well as he could uh, or back in the day. But I don't know. I mean, I think that uh, there is uh, some some real good reason to be into this fight, although I do want to talk for a second about the fight card as a whole, because here we go back to having that same what are they throwing up on Fight Pass as their exclusive content kind of conversation? And like we said, Saturday morning on a Saturday where you have another fight card, a much better fight card on TV that evening. Uh, and what you got at the top is Bisping and Kung Lee, like we said, a fun fight. Dung Hyung Kim versus uh, Tyron Woodley, uh, another pretty interesting fight. And then you got 50 feet of crap. After that, look at that thing. Look at it. I mean, you know, these, most of these guys you never heard of. Uh, hardly a Wikipedia page in the bunch. Yeah, uh, there's
0: 20 fighters on this page. Six of them have Wikipedia pages. And three of those guys are Roland DeLorme, Utah Sasaki, and Royston Wee. Yeah. No, so,
1: I mean, there's just not a whole lot there. This is the, these are the ones where you start to realize like, oh, yeah, when they say that the fights we do in Macau are for Macau, goddamn, they mean it. Yeah. The, the, these are not for us. It really. actually
0: totally blew my mind. I opened up this fight card a couple of days ago and saw Tyron Woodley was fighting on it. I went, yeah. oh man, Tyron Woodley, all right. Yeah, I'm he, sorry to miss that one.
1: He 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 stepped up in there uh, to fill in uh, for for an injury there. I think uh, coming off that that disappointing fight uh, against uh, uh, Rory McDonald. Rory McDonald. Yeah, so I mean, you got those two things at the top, and but it, it, this is also makes you wonder, like, okay, if people are supposed to. Are people subscribing to Fight Pass to see that one? I don't really think so. You know, I think it's the kind of where you, you wait and you hear if it was any good or not afterwards. Uh I mean Bisping Kung Lee, interesting enough, but uh, a lot of this other stuff, it just feels like you know, it makes you you, you think about some of Dana White's recent comments about their expansion, and you think, Okay, well if this is the cost of expansion, man, ah, it's kinda kinda getting rough there.
0: Yeah, uh, he, he sort of admitted, if, I, if we're thinking about the same comments, right, that that uh, they can't really taper back the schedule at this point, right. which is something we've talked about in the past, uh, not only because of the Fox deal, but be, because of this international expansion, uh that they're, they're kind of where they are now. He said, do you have the, the quote in front do, of you? Right, I do what,
1: have the, the, the quote here. Uh, he said this, I believe, this was at the post-fight scrum this past weekend. And he was asked about the oversaturation question. His quote was, quote, we can't taper back. As we continue to go global, I'm leaving tomorrow and heading to China. If we taper back, how are we going to do China? How are we going to do Ireland? How are we going to do all these other countries? We can't taper back with what we're doing globally. You can't go global and do less fights. By the way, it's fewer fights. Uh, you can't do it, which... You're right. It's basically him saying like, oh, no, we have to do this for our business plan. And that's the kind of thing where it seems weird to me. Like the UFC using its own business interests as a justification when people are asking, hey, wait a minute. How come we're getting a, a crappier product than the one we used to get a couple of years ago? Right. And the UFC is saying, oh, because it's because we figured out we could make more money that way. Like we could just give you a little bit like we could sacrifice some quality and uh, what we're offering you, and that would be better for us, like, financially. And it's like you don't hear any other company coming out and saying that that's what they're doing. Like, hey, how come uh, Chips Ahoy are, 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 you know, soggy bullshit cookies? Oh, it's because we realize that uh, if you're buying them anyway, you're not exactly a cookie connoisseur, and it's cheaper to make them this way. So here, take this crap. Uh, it's not as good as what we used to make, but uh, we're just pulling in money hand over fist because of it. Like, I don't recall a whole lot of fans saying, you know what I want from the UFC? It's for them to be global. No, yeah. fans want good fights consistently.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of audacious to hear him admit it like that. Uh and like sort of admitting that if you are a person that has been into this sport for a long time, I don't really care where you live, America, Ireland, Australia, Canada, Brazil, like this is not in your best interest, right? Like you you're getting served a slightly less quality, lower quality project product uh in what as you point out and what I think is revealed in this quote, in the interest of the ufc's business plan yes. of its best interest and they're
1: talking to you like you're a shareholder or something like that like it should this should placate you you shouldn't complain because hey we're explaining how this makes money for us but yeah great it makes money for you it doesn't really it doesn't really help us i mean we will want to see the fighters make more money but that's more money for the ufc as we've seen does not necessarily translate to a sudden jump in fighter pay i mean imagine how good uh this other fight card the one uh at at the Bach... The BOK, uh, the granddaddy of them all, imagine how good that one would be if you took the existing card and you added Bisping Kung Lee and Dong Hung Kim, Tyron Woodley. Right. Then suddenly yeah. you, you got some shit worth staying home for on Saturday night and, and firing up the old Fox Sports 1. I mean, and you, you take a, a little bit away from that to go over and, and do some stuff in China for your own global interests and fans end up you know not getting as good of a product at the end of the day.
0: All right, well, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, I don't know if you caught Scott Coker on the Fortnite today talking about how, as of 2015, Bellator is going to start doing one show a month rather than the weekly television program that it had been doing over on Spike TV. Uh And I'm just saying... Man, how are you gonna go to China? How are you gonna invade the Philippines if you're, if you're only doing one show a month? Can't taper back. I'm just saying, man. Just saying. It's almost like someone thinks that if they do fewer shows, they'll have a higher quality product. Oh, that's weird. I have no idea how that's supposed to work. I'll be interested to see how that pans out. Just saying. Just
1: saying. Well, Chad, this week, I'm just saying, I know you caught your guy Josh Koscheck sitting at the analyst desks. Big time. That's right. Uh, putting shining himself up, putting on a little suit, getting on there uh doing the old analyst thing. Uh not too shabby for his his first time out in that gig, but I'm just saying, I don't know if you noticed this, but uh Josh Koscheck's analyst style seems to depend pretty heavily on holding a pen while and gesturing with it while he speaks. Yeah, he's pen dependent. Yeah. I'm just saying, you take away that pen from Josh Koscheck, he's got nothing. He's got nothing at all.
0: It's mightier than the sword, they say. You know what I liked about Koscheck's commentating style was he kind of did a uh, professional wrestler buy-in time on the mic style, where whatever anybody would ask him something, he would just repeat it back to them first. So, like, Karen Bryant would be like, well, what impressed you the most about Ryan Bader? And he would say, well, Karen, let me tell you what impressed me the most about Ryan Bader. And then he would have his answer. So it was kind of like he was buying a little time. It's which- like those
1: uh, English 101 uh, essays we used to read, where the- people would spend the first paragraph telling us what the essay was going to be about. Yeah. First, I'm- I will make this point, and then second,
0: I will make this point, and finally, and Conclusion, I will say this. I, uh, I thought it was a pro move from Koscheck. Anyway, <laughs> that's going to do it for the Co Main Event podcast this week. We'll be back next week to break down all the crazy stuff that happens at these dueling events on Saturday night. But as for right now, we're done. We are through. We are out. Jed, the name of that film, Like Father, Like Son, 1987, starring Dudley Moore
1: and Kirk Cameron. Wow, Kirk Cameron. That's right. Via uh, yeah, IMDb plot summary, a mysterious potion switches the personalities of a buttoned-up doctor and his laid-back
0: son. How do you not want to see that? That does sound like comedy gold. I feel like we should have been able to come up with that podcast.